Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Revelation 10, 8-11 Welcome to Tell Me the Story with Blaze Webster and Rowdy Wind. Join us for a weekly study of the Bible as we read verse by verse with the original context and languages at the forefront, illuminating the stories at hand. Joseph is forced out of his family tribe and thrust into the world of the Egyptians. Judah left the family tribe by choice, and the results were, well, disastrous. Having heard this comparison, we are now back in Egypt, where we will hear that it is the Lord, as in Yahweh the great functionator, who guides all of Joseph's actions in this chapter. By contrast, Yahweh was hardly mentioned in Judah's dealings because what he was doing, what Judah was doing, was in direct disobedience to Yahweh. When Yahweh is mentioned, it's to enact divine punishment. From here on, Joseph will channel Isaiah's model of the suffering servant who does nothing at all but the will of God. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything except the food he ate. So most of this is self-explanatory, but there are a few things worth pointing out. For one, Joseph's obedience to God not only blesses him, but blesses Egypt on account of him. His obedience to the Torah is spreading the fruits of the Torah, if you will, to the Gentiles. Potiphar's acknowledgement of Yahweh as the cause of the success through Joseph's obedience is a vitally important detail that often gets missed. Contrast this with the story of Sarah and Hagar and how she, the Hebrew, mistreats her Egyptian slave. Joseph is not fighting back here, even in the slightest. In full obedience to the scriptural God, he is simply submitting to the earthly authority because he knows that the earthly authority is not really the one with the power. Right, that is the function of the obedient slave to Yahweh, or the universal God Elohim, however you want to fashion it. And this flies in the face of the Gentilic pantheons, or even the Middle Eastern pantheons of gods and tribal deities that would have been the cultural history of our scriptural authors. All of the gods of every historical people in human history function for the sake of the individual who worships them. What I mean is that there is hardly a line separating 
the worship of a god and worship of the self. If I worshipped some god of fertility, I would be worshipping that god so I would have fertile crops. The god of the skies is worshipped for good weather, and I may worship the god of trade because I want good business in my marketplace dealings. The scriptural god, however, is worshipped first and foremost not by performance, but out of behavior, and it's not for the sake of my benefit, but the sake of of my neighbor. Joseph was obedient to God and was blessed, therefore Potiphar was blessed, and it was Potiphar who was so blessed he had only to worry about what he was putting into his stomach. Joseph, uh, though directly connected to God in the narrative, is at work. He is blessed, but he is working. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept me back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. So Joseph's famous encounter with Potiphar's wife is interesting because it certainly has a comedic undertone. Remember that Potiphar is a saris under Pharaoh, which basically means he's a eunuch. Why and how does he have a wife? Again, I think that's the joke being implied here. I think Potiphar being a eunuch serves two functions here. For one, it's calling back to the mind of circumcision as God's mark of superiority and control over the progeny, as in a uh, suzerain treaty. Circumcision was employed in the ancient world as an alternative to castration. Castration would be counterintuitive in God's covenant with Abraham because the seed still needs to continue from generation to generation. But the mark that is left delivers the message that God is ultimately in control of the seed and that the firstborn is Kodesh, as in taboo, and reserved for him only. Another function of Potiphar as Saris is to make him impotent and therefore not a threat. Again, Potiphar's household is blessed and Masliah, successful, only because of God's blessing towards Joseph. Knowing that Potiphar cannot produce children for her, his wife goes after Joseph in an interesting parallel to the last chapter with Tamar's inability to bear children. The difference in that situation is that Tamar's lack of progeny was due to the iniquity of her husband's, but here Potiphar's wife just has the misfortune of being married to a man who can't produce seed. But Joseph, being loyal to God, obviously rejects her advances. To do otherwise would be to do what his brother Judah did, which was to have relations with a woman that wasn't his. And I mean this in a literal sense. Nowadays, we've kind of preserved this ownership on a superficial level, having more of an emotional ownership over someone, although obviously it's not really ownership at all. In the ancient world, the reality was that women were viewed as property first to their fathers and then to the husband. 
Judah's relationship with Tamar was taboo because she was a widow and therefore in her father's house and in essence the property of her father. So Joseph doesn't do this mostly because to do so would be to contravene his master's property. So why am I saying all this? Well, I think it's vital, even in these small instances, to think as someone hearing this originally, how they would think, how they would take it in. As far as interpersonal relationships and marriages go, we're just very, very, very far removed from the ancient Near East and how we view relationships today. So it's important to keep that in mind. Part of the effort here is not only to learn the story, and not even just to learn the language, but to learn it in the context and to do what we have to do to transport ourselves mentally to that time and place. Yeah, and I also think it's important to emphasize again Joseph's dialogue in this regard. It truly displays Joseph's understanding of the situation. He says, Behold, because of me my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? It isn't just that this would be a slight against Joseph's master, but it would be an outright display of wickedness. Joseph was purchased by Potiphar as a slave, and when Joseph displays success, more was given to him and his charge. Joseph has taken nothing for himself, much unlike Judah in the previous chapter who took a wife for himself, right? We've talked about how that is negative. That's the key. He has taken nothing for himself but that which he was given in faith by his master. The one and only thing not given to him, as he says, is his master's wife. To take something for himself at this stage, whatever it is, let alone it be his wife, would be the worst and most disgraceful wickedness imaginable after so much trust has been invested in him. But real quick, let's zoom in on that word, wickedness. It is that Hebrew word, ra'ah, that we have discussed time and time again. You can check out our last few episodes for more of an expansion into this word, but it sticks out to me here as it has been appearing more and more in Joseph's story. And the last thing I want to point out is that Joseph declares that this type of wickedness would be sinful against God. Wickedness, or ra'ah, toward Potiphar, but sin, or chata in Hebrew, against God. This word chata in Hebrew has a basic meaning of missing the mark. Joseph is well aware of the correct manner to behave in accordance with God's will, and any misstep, any ra'ah committed against another person is against God's will, thus missing the mark. This word goes all the way back to Genesis 4, and note, it is not the story of the quote-unquote original sin, philosophized and romanticized by theologians, but it was the first occurrence of ill-intended action from one human to another. Yes, that's right, it's the story of Cain and Abel. Just before Cain murders Abel, when Cain is jealous and angry toward Abel, God warns Cain that Chata is crouching at the door, waiting for him, and its desire is to have him, but he must get this, Mashal, or rule over it. I mean, that's just brilliant. It's so simple. Sin is the ill intent toward the neighbor, and we must mashal over it by utilizing the knowledge granted to us in the form of mashal, which is scripture. And now I know I'm stepping outside the parameters of today's episode a bit, but this is literature and it is self-contained. We don't have to be creative and come up with these easily digestible but paradoxically complicated 
definitions of theologically dense concepts like sin, original sin, good works, faith, etc. The text has done the work for us. It is the humble Bedouin shepherd who acts as a host to us, inviting us in and sharing what it has to teach. And we are the arrogant outsider who sees it as a worthless book, a worthless collection of stories, if not for the rules and parameters we place on it to make it worthy for ourselves. But anyway, back to the story. But one day when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice to cry out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. One of the most interesting things to note in this section is Potiphar's wife's accusation against Joseph that he came to mock her. The original has tzachak, which our listeners would probably recognize as the word that forms the basis for Itzhak, Isaac's name. Literally, the text would say that Isaac came in to laugh at her to make her a joke, a major sign of disobedience and disrespect, obviously, especially coming from a foreigner and, in his case, a slave. This does a few interesting things. For one, it draws an unmistakable parallel between Joseph and Isaac, specifically how their role as the raham, the sacrificial sin offering explicated in Isaiah 40 to 55. We will explore this point more thoroughly as the text goes on, but it's important to keep it in the back of our minds. Another interesting thing this text is doing is drawing a parallel between this story in the story of Sarah banishing Hagar and Ishmael after she sees Ishmael laughing at Isaac. Remember in that story the roles were flipped. An Egyptian slave was mistreated by her Hebrew masters, and here it's the other way around. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home, and she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. 
One thing about this chapter that I think serves as a good reminder is how active Yahweh is here, as opposed to the previous chapter where he only shows up to impose punishment on Judah's sons. Here he is constantly being mentioned as blessing Joseph and making him successful in Egypt. With Yahweh being active, Joseph is strictly inactive, despite being a sojourner himself. This is another parallel with Isaac. So, as we continue on in the story, we will see that the Torah of God can exist and flourish anywhere, even in the land of the double bondage. Right, we must draw the conclusion that it is because of Joseph's obedience that Yahweh is with him. That doesn't mean that Joseph earned it in any way, that's not how it works. But, remember Jacob's success was allowed by Yahweh, because all things are permitted by God's aegis. But Yahweh himself wasn't actively mentioned in the story as being with Jacob because the text was emphasizing the fact that Jacob was acquiring and being successful by his own hands. Here, Joseph is almost completely passive. He is serving those around him in accordance with God's expectations, and Yahweh is with him, making his dealings successful. Isaac, too, was passive. And again, that doesn't mean that these two characters don't do anything at all. The text just doesn't clue us in on their dealings necessarily. What matters is how they deal with their neighbor. If they act correctly, then it doesn't matter what else they do. It doesn't matter how mighty they are. If they act correctly according to God's command, the success of their circumstances can only be attributed to God. Those characters who do not obey God are often described as being quite active. And they may succeed, sure, but it's to their own demise quite often. Think again of Jacob's mishaps with Laban, or Cain's fleeing to build a city after being exiled, or Judah convoluting all these plans to bring up an heir. The most active characters are the ones who are distracted. The goal is to not be distracted. That should be our goal. And our focus should be taking care of those around us, which is to love God. That's what it means to worship, to love God is to do what he says, which is to take care of the people around you. May we all do this, like Joseph, and may we all be forgotten, so that the only thing which remains of our quote-unquote legacy is the story which created us. See you all next week. This podcast is a production of the Ephesus School Network.